0: Jewish Audio on Kaban.org Continuing in our Rambam Mishneh Torah study, The Laws of Shabbos, we continue with chapter 12, Patek Yudbeis. Going back to chapter 7, where the Rambam enumerates the thirty-nine labors of Shabbos. Labor number thirty-seven: Ve'ha'ha'vora, kindling a flame. Hamavir kolsha, who a person who kindles even the smallest fire, Chayav is liable. So that there is no minimum size fire that one has to kindle on Shabbos to be liable. Now, we know, we've already established that there has to be intent and there has to be purposeful labor. So there are various settings in which one could want to kindle a flame and have a need for it. And he brings the first one down here. The who this would be provided that he needs the ashes. Now, that's a good example. Because if he needs the ash, then the fire serves a purpose. That's just one example. Now, why is this a labor? Because in the construction of the Mishkan, it was necessary to kindle a fire in order to cook the herbs used for the dyes of the curtains and the metalwork, and so on and so forth. So if he cooks for a purpose, the example is he needs the ashes, then he's liable. However, if he cooks without purpose, if he's just being destructive, then we have a principle that says this is not a violation of a labor. potter. Then he's not liable. Of course, it's forbidden by rabbinic law to kindle flame, On Shabbos in any case. But he's not liable (coughs) from the biblical perspective of the malacha of the labor. Mipnei, shehu, mikalkel, because he's ruining and destroying and ruining and destroying, not for the sake of recreating and building. Is not considered a violation of Shabbos because in the Mishkan everything was purposeful. Now here's an interesting scenario which is quoted in many arenas of life. Fascinating. What if somebody sets fire to somebody's heap of produce? His, his granary, whatever. Or somebody burns down somebody else's house. That's what we call in America a pyromaniac. Well, not really. He really is out to get the guy. Chayov is liable. Afal pishu Wait a minute. We just said that if somebody's being destructive, he's not liable. The answer is because there was a purpose to it. He hated the guy. And he wanted to burn his house down. And so he feels better His intent was to take vengeance from his enemy. Now, we're not saying this is a good thing. But the fact is, it served a purpose. He's much calmer now. His anger has calmed. His temper has chilled. This would be an example. Like... I may say, like somebody would tear his garment because he suffered a death in the family, so that the tearing of the garment serves a purpose. Or in anger, it serves a purpose. He's venting. Shuchayev, therefore, he would be liable. And this is, again, a fantastic lesson that even though he's being destructive, but he wants to be destructive. He feels better when he's destructive. It's not a nice thing to do, but he accomplished his purpose, and so he's liable for the violation, for violating Shabbos. It would be similar to somebody who causes injury to a colleague in the middle of a fight, <coughs> we know that injury <coughs> for the purpose of destruction is not a violation of Shabbos, except when you're fighting. <coughs> and you feel good when you injure your enemy, then you've accomplished. It's not a kosher accomplishment, but it's an accomplishment. It violates Shabbos. Shekol Elo, and here the Rambam has a beautiful expression. Shekol Elo mitaknin hein eitzel yitzron hara from the perspective of their evil inclinations, from the value system of their evil side, <coughs> they've had an excellent day. They've accomplished. And similarly speaking, excuse me, let me just drink a little hot tea here. Thank you, <coughs> Thank you guys, for the tea. <coughs> and similarly speaking... Another example of purposeful <coughs> kindling is if somebody kindles a candle, he lights a candle, or he, eats him, or he kindles wood. Now, we gave an example earlier of somebody who burns something because he needs the ashes. Here he doesn't need the ashes. is He's kindling the wood in the fireplace because he wants to warm up. Or he's kindling the light in the lamp because he wants to illuminate his environment. That's the purpose warming up or illuminating. Hare Zachayev again, he's liable, culpable. Or somebody who heats iron in order to strengthen it by submerging it in water. That's the way they strengthen iron. Hare Sma'Vir, this would be a derivative. Of kindling, the chayev, and he would be liable to, if we look at the list, violation or labor number thirty-eight of the thirty-nine labors of Shabbos. The good news is we're almost there. The bad news is we're about to hit the most complex, <laughs> perhaps. Or the one of the most complex of all the labors next. But thirty-eight is very basic, extinguishing a flame. The Hakibwi, extinguishing. kol Shu, anybody who extinguishes a flame, any type of flame, Chayev, is liable. In the Mishkan <coughs> they would extinguish flames, creating charcoal. That's how you create charcoal. You blow out the flame and the charcoal. Heats up. Whether he extinguishes a candle. Or he extinguishes a burning charcoal. Shalates of wood. Makes no difference. This was one of the labors in the tabernacle. If somebody extinguishes a glowing piece of metal, potter, he's not liable. Again, this is potter. He's not liable. But of course it's forbidden rabbinically. Because that's not the function that they did in the Mishkan. However, if his intent is to purify the metal, then he is liable because he's accomplishing. Because that's what blacksmiths do. They heat the metal until it becomes a coal. They extinguish it in water in order to steal it. I lost my place for a second. This would be the process of purification, which one would be liable for, and this is a derivative, I told her, Of extinguishing. So, we're talking about purification, making something red hot, and then extinguishing it. Now, segueing into a whole different world, what if there's a a coal, a flaming coal in the public domain? Someone could get hurt. Smokey the Bear says, only you can prevent forest fires. So he sees this flaming coal. It's permissible to extinguish it. Kiddeshullah Yazukah Barab, in order that people shouldn't get hurt. Because it's very dangerous. Now he goes on to say, If somebody adds oil into a burning candle, there's a burning oil lamp, and he adds oil, what's so bad? He is liable for kindling because he is increasing the kindling. Not immediately, but he will. Interesting. And on the other hand, the opposite. If somebody takes some oil, let's say he has olive oil burning and he needs a little for his salad because his nutritionist says olive oil is good for you. So he walks over to the lamp and takes some olive oil. Now, he's extinguishing because he's causing the lamp to be extinguished earlier. Gimel, I want to give a little bit of an introduction to the following paragraphs. Let me begin by saying that although we're going to learn about different laws which say that if a fire breaks out and it's not life-threatening, one should not necessarily, or perhaps under certain circumstances, necessarily not extinguish it on Shabbos. Because it's not threatening life, it's only money. It is clear according to most if not all halakhic authorities that nowadays when fire has proven to be so dangerous because it spreads and it just keeps going and growing, nowadays Most, if not all, fires do present a serious, possible, life-threatening problem, and halacha has become very liberal with the laws of extinguishing fires because of the danger of fire in today's world. That's just by way of introduction. Now let's learn the halacha as it unfolds. And again, we don't... Decide law from the Rambam. The Rambam gives us a platform for the later development of law. Delay kashanaf la If a fire broke out in Shabbos, hamechabais bud momen Somebody who extinguishes the fire because he's trying to limit financial or monetary laws is liable because monetary loss is not a reason to violate Shabbos. Danger of life is a reason, not monetary loss. If he's certain that it's only monetary loss, then you cannot extinguish it. Shain ibud momen deicha This is the rule. That monetary loss does not supersede the law of Shabbos. That's logical and obvious. Elo ibud nefashis, only loss of life or possible loss of life. Now the question is, is this fire possibly, and that's the buzzword, the key word, possibly threatening life at some point in time? If it's limited and contained that no one will be harmed, let the few people who are there walk out. In order that they should, God forbid, not die. Let them, let the fire burn out. Even if it's going to burn the whole house down, there's no people in there, and it's not going to spread and burn the city down. By the way, in the translation here, in the Mosnayim Ramam, I'm not sure how it is in the Chayenu. there's a mistake in the English. It says even if it consumes the entire city, but the Hebrew is even if it consumes the entire house. For dalid. It's permissible to create a barrier. One of the ways of fighting a fire is creating a barrier. You use any type of containers, whether full, or empty, in order that the fire should not spread. Even New earthenware, vessels filled with water. You can create a barrier. What's the problem? What's the chidrush? Because they are new. They're not. They haven't been used yet. And they're surely going to crack. And the water is going to come out. And it's going to extinguish the fire. So are you extinguishing the fire that's not threatening life? It's okay. That's fine. And here comes an important rule shegram, kibui mutter, because when it comes to extinguishing something that extinguishes indirectly, which in Hebrew is called gram, the cause. It's not direct, it's indirect. That's great, that's permissible. And the word mutter means permissible to begin with. Another example the makira. You can take a plate a bowl, and put it over a candle in order that the light should not catch the beams of the roof. That's another liberty that halacha takes, because fire could be dangerous. So we take every liberty possible, even when the flame is there and only threatening financial loss. Another example, five, teva shidu migdo, which is a famous halachic expression, translated as a perfume box, or another type of box. A chest, or a wooden cabinet. Again, this is for those who are used to halachic expressions. Teva, shida, omigdo. A box, a chest, a wooden cabinet. She'ochas b'nar, which caught fire. Maybe ergedi. An example is you can bring goat skin or another substance, which will not catch fire, not flammable, and he spreads it on the edge, which has not yet been burned, in order that the fire not keep moving. Another barrier. They tell a story, uh, on the, in the olden world, fire was very, very dangerous. There was this big fire that broke out at the bottom of a big hill and none of the fire engines of all the community were comfortable going down there. It was very, very dangerous. And they spread the word that anybody would go down there and extinguish the fire. They'd get 500 rubles, an amazing amount of money. And everybody was afraid to go down. Along comes the Jewish fire truck and he comes rolling along at... 50 miles an hour and zooms right down to the middle of the fire and all the firemen get out and they extinguish the fire and, and he comes out and they're hugging them and carrying them these are big heroes and they say amazing amazing wow congratulations by the way what are you going to do with the uh, 500 rubles he says the first thing i'm going to do is buy a new fire trucks the brakes should work uh, Okay, six, talis, What if a garment caught fire? Peshto, one can spread it out, or or one could put it on. By doing that, it'll extinguish the little flame because it'll hit you. I mean, we're not talking about a flaming thing, we're talking about something, uh, an act which will cause the, the, the flame to extinguish. The fact that by putting it on or by spreading it out, it's being extinguished. So it's extinguished. That's good. You're indirectly extinguishing it. Again, we're talking about scenarios that are threatening monetary loss, not loss of life. Loss of life, you go and put it out to begin with. Another example, say potato, shah haz If a Torah scroll catches fire, but you can open it up as if you're going to read in it or really read in it, and bim koba Obviously, if you unfurl it, it's going to extinguish because it's the, the flame hits the, the table. You're going to suffocate it. Another example is you pour water on the sides, shadayan le nitl bara, where it hasn't caught on yet, bim kop and if it extinguishes, great a person left a burning candle on a board it was not placed there with the intention that it remained there on Shabbos he just forgot it he can shake the board causing the candle to fall kovan as it falls if it becomes extinguished that's good but if he put it there intentionally before Shabbos, even though it extinguished also the Taltele, it's forbidden to touch. Now, we learned that there are certain limitations as to what non-Jews can do. For a Jew on Shabbos, all of that falls away with fire. If a non-Jew comes to extinguish the fire... You don't tell him, extinguish directly. Don't tell him, don't extinguish. Because we learned earlier, a non-Jew does not have to keep Shabbos. Certainly it's not our responsibility. He's just not allowed to directly violate Shabbos on our behalf. But a child who comes to extinguish, ain't shame we don't permit him. That's assuming that his father sent him. If he's coming on his own, that the court doesn't have to admonish him not to put out the fire. And in general, the rule is that when it comes to fire... Our sages taught, anyone who extinguishes the fire is not going to suffer a loss. It's a good thing. And again, I want to point out that if there is any sense whatsoever that the fire could be life-threatening, as we know today, then unless the fire is a very, very contained fire, then it should be extinguished on Shabbos according to most halachic authorities because of the danger of life and that's not a joke. Okay. Now we come to labor number 39. <clears throat> I would venture to say that the two most complex of the 39 labors are cooking, which we already covered to a great extent, and number 39, the v'hahaytsoh mirshus lishus, transferring an object from one domain to another from a private domain to a public domain, carrying in a public domain in a place that does not have an Eruv. An Eruv means enclosed. The Eruv makes the public domain private. I'm going to learn all those laws too. So as they used to say back home, as we embark upon labor number 39, buckle your seatbelts. Get Get comfortable. We'll be serving peanuts and coke. It's going to be a while. And I don't mean today. I mean it's going to go on and on and on. And we're going to get an education. Introductory, paragraph 8, transferring objects, bringing in and taking out from one domain to another, this is one of the thirty-nine major, primary labels, labors. It's a labor which is called an av melacha, a primary labor, and that's the thirty-ninth. Even though this labor the prohibition of carrying from one domain to another, the prohibition of carrying four cubits or more in the public domain is something taught by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses taught it to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. Just like all the 39 labors, none of the 39 labors are specifically mentioned in the Torah with the exception of kindling. Which is the big question, why kindling? And, and so on and so forth. Yet, there is an allusion to this transferring from one domain to the other in the Torah, where it says, "Ish No man and no woman. Should do any more labor concerning donations to the sanctuary. That's when the treasurer of the sanctuary took a look and said they had too much, too many donations. And they said, "Stop bringing the donations." Biggest mistake Moses ever made. Vayikole <laughs> mehobi says the Torah, and the people stop bringing. From this language you can interpret to say, When it says labor, stop the labor, and then it says they stop bringing that transferring from one domain to another, from private to public, would be called labor. So that's what we call an Asmachta. We rely on this, but it's not the source for it. The source is taught by God to Moshe, and by most of the Jewish people on Mount Sinai. And this is what we learn according to the oral tradition. That if somebody carries an article from the beginning of a square of four cubits by four cubits, there are various halakhic opinions of what a cubit is but the average opinion is it's a foot and a half. So four cubits by four cubits would be six feet by six feet. If somebody carries six feet in the public domain, and we're going to redefine that soon, (speaking) it's as if he takes from one domain to the other. So there are two parts to this. Part one is taking from one domain to the other, private to public, or public to private. The other is In the public domain, carrying outside of the four-cubit, or up to the four-cubit, by four-cubit line. It's the same, the and is liable. Now we have some basic rules, axioms. Without these axioms, we cannot begin to understand the laws of Shabbos. Axiom number one. One who transfers an object from one domain to the other, which means public to private or private to public, is not liable until he transfers the minimum (coughs) size object. Most laws of the Torah have a minimum size from the private domain to the public domain, or, from the public domain to the private domain. That's axiom rule number one. Number two, the person must uproot or remove or pick up the article from one domain and must set it down in a second domain. That's called, in halachic vernacular, akira, lifting up, and hanochah putting down. Unless there is an akira, where you pick it up, and hanocha you put it down, pick it up in one domain, put it in, down in another domain, you did not complete the labor, and we're going to talk details. Aval, however, im okar, if... He merely picked up the article. But he didn't put it down. He put it down, but did not remove it. Or another scenario, as he moved, he picked up and put down something that's too small to be considered a violation. Doesn't have the minimum size. Potter, he's exempt. And These are rules, and these rules will, of course, be defined. Similarly speaking, if somebody moves something four cubits in the public domain, Einachayv is not liable until he removes from one end of the four cubits, sets it down in the other end of the four cubits. Similarly speaking, ten, somebody who throws something from one domain to the other. You're standing outside in the street and you throw something into a private yard, or vice versa. Or you hand an article from one domain to a person in another domain. And he goes on to point out that in the construction of the sanctuary, the beams for the walls of the sanctuary were passed from the public domain to the storage wagons, which were considered private domains, because as we'll learn, they're high up. So, this is the source of the fact that this was a labor in the Mishka. The Chain, so also, Hazedek, Someone who throws, a should be their hands with his hand. Or this is a derivative labor of transferring the and he's culpable. But if somebody throws in an abnormal way, he throws over his shoulder or behind or whatever, potter, then he's exempt. And as we usually say, potter, avol Osir he's not liable, but it's forbidden by rabbinic law. Now, as we go on, <clears throat> we'll get more and more definition. <laughs> if he brings forth only a part of the object from one of these two domains to the other, either from public to private or private to public, Potter, being that he only brought forth part of the item, he's exempt until he takes the entire object for example, he takes a big box and he transfers it and it ends up on the border half and half he didn't do the whole box so he's not liable it's not permissible by rabbinic law. and he gives an interesting example kupa, you have a box which is filled with something lots of stuff a philomilea chardl even if it's filled with he gives an example here mustard seed mustard seed is a bunch of little things so you say well he transferred a heck of a lot of mustard seed box is a big box it's got lots of mustard seed let's talk in our vernacular nobody knows what mustard seed is. it's got a box of sweet and now we're talking and he takes the box And the box has 10,000 packages of sweet and low. And he transferred 8,000 packages out, but 2,000 are left at the end of the box. But it's one box. So he says here, even though he takes the majority of the box out of one domain, into another domain, Potter is still not liable. It's not permissible, but he's not liable. Until he takes the whole box. The And the same thing is anything similar, because the container or the box, considers everything in that container, everything in that box as one unit. Therefore, he did not transfer the whole unit. 12, when somebody transfers from domain to domain, Bain be whether he transfers with his right hand bain bi or he transfers with his left hand bain betoi or he transfers in his bosom or he has money bound up in his money cloth hayabi liable why cuz that's what people do mipnei shehitzik daragametzin because he did it in the normal way similarly speaking if somebody carries something from one domain to the other transfers from one domain to the other is culpable, he's liable bring me that even though the weight that which he's carrying is higher than 10 handbreadths high and here there's another axiom which we have to talk about let me just get you the dimension one handbreadth according to the kahat chumash is 3.15 inches 10 handbreadths would be 31.50 inches, 31.5 inches, which means, <clears throat> and please bear with me, the space below three hand breaths, again, a hand breath is 3.15 inches, so the space below 10 inches is considered the ground. Whatever happens, 10 inches or lower, is the earth, is the ground. Not even talk about that. Anything that's there is as if it's on the ground. Anything that's above 10 hand breaths, 31 and a half inches, not that high, about, you know, yay high. I mean, 3 feet is 36 inches, so... 31 and a half inches, anything higher than that, is considered out of the space of the public domain. It's technically a permissible space. Because when people carry, they usually carry between three hand breaths and ten hand breaths. That's where their hands are. And we're going to learn a lot about this, but take the rule. Below three hand breaths from the ground is considered the ground. It's on the ground. Above ten hand breaths in the public domain One has found a place where one can escape the technical liability of the public domain. It's like when, you know, planes fly and they fly below the radar. They're escaping the radar. There's a way to escape the radar. Here, this height escapes domain. So now he says that what if somebody is carrying something on his shoulder which is above the ten hand breaths? Chayav, he's still liable. I would think he's not liable. He's in that exempt space. Even though the burden is higher than ten handbreadths in a public domain. Because the members of the family of Kahos, that Levite family, who carried the holy stuff on their shoulders, they did it obviously at that height. It was their job description to carry it on their shoulders. And labor, Shabbat labor, is derived from Mishkan labor. Therefore, technically, he would be out of the public domain because it's higher than 10 handbreads, but not for this purpose, because he's carrying it on his shoulder as people normally carry burdens. Avol thirteen. However, But if somebody transfers an article on the back of his hand, beraglay or his foot, in his mouth, with marpeko in his elbow, baoslay in his ear, besara in its hair, or bekis shetaf or in a pocket that is sewn in in an abnormal place. In his, po- in, in his garment, or well, if the pocket is facing down, obviously if the pocket is a normal pocket, then it's a normal uh, way of doing things. between one garment and the other, in the mouth of his garment, in his shoe, in his sandal, these are all examples of Potter of exempt actions, forbidden but exempt, not liable. Because that's not how people carry stuff out. Now, what about hametzim masi If somebody carries a burden on his head, it depends if that's normal. If it was a heavy burden, like a filled sack, a table, or a chest or a box, which people normally place on their head, certainly in certain cultures, and they hold it with their hand, Hayab he's culpable. Shekain because that's what people do. It's like taking with one's shoulder or taking with one's hand. However, he takes a lightweight object and puts it on his head, that's not normal. The garment. I say for a book, a say or a knife, I'll raise on his head and carried it from one domain to the other, or four cubits in the public domain, and he's not carrying, he's exempt. he did not do things in a normal fashion. People don't take light things and put it on their head to carry. The majority of the world does not engage in this practice, to have things sitting on their head and carrying them, unless they're heavy things which make sense in certain cultures. If somebody carries an object for these four cubits in the public domain, even though he carried it above his head, and he, again, has beaten the system by exceeding, going higher than the ten hand-breaths, is still culpable, because that's normal, and again, that's what they did in the Mishkan. I want to just point out, we're going to talk about this later, we talk about 10 hand breaths or higher, 31 and a half inches or higher, in the public domain, not being the public domain, because people usually carry between 3 hand breaths and 10 hand breaths. In a private domain, it doesn't work. In a private domain, everything in my domain at every height is private. My airspace is private. So in the private domain, that rule of 10 never works, and we're going to learn about this. We have to, again, establish certain axioms. 15. What about within the four cubes by four cubes square, within the six foot by six foot square, I may carry in a public setting as much as I want to, back and forth within this, I guess you would say, 36 feet square. I can do the entire square. Obama Shaleh made it in, and you usually measure the arm's length, a cubit is an arm's length of the person. If the person was a midget, they give him an average arm's length. And from tradition we learn that that which is stated in the Torah, of each man shall remain in his place. We shouldn't carry out of this in this domain. It's the length of man when he stretches. That's where he can carry. And now you should see a diagram. You should have a, two diagrams before you. It should say chapter 12. Also, for those on the internet, this is from the Moznaim Rambam. And hopefully it will be shown If there were two people, we see that the four cubits of one person cuts into the four cubits of the other. If I'm here and he's there, then my four cubits can cut into his four cubits. Then there's no reason we can't carry from my end of the four cubits. To the other guy's end of the four cubits and meet for a cubit or two in the middle and have lunch. As long as we don't violate and go into the other guy's four cubits and carry our item. What if there were three people who were set in a public place, one after the other? And the middle guy is swallowed up between them. Then the guy in the middle is permissible to interact by transferring objects to both sides. But the two outer ones are forbidden to interact with one another. So here in this diagram, where it shows A, C, and B, you have Mr. A... His space goes across the four cubits. Mr. B, his space goes ac- across the four cubits. And C shows the shared space between them. 17. A person may actually lift up, pick up an article from the public domain and give it to his friend who is with him in those four cubits that would be an area C in the diagram now if there's another guy on the other side they can do the same thing even if there's a hundred people as long as no one exceeds their four cubits if there are people lined up for a mile or ten miles that's fine Because I just kept handing it over to the other guy who can hand it over to the other guy because they share cubits. Like the picture of ABC here. So the object may be handed over. It's the people that can do it. The rule here is that every person only carries in his four cubit area. Now he says that mathematically, if you talk about a square of six feet by six feet, or let's talk Amas, four Amas by four Amas, being that a person can carry in the whole square of four Amas by four Amas, so he can carry the whole diagonal line Of this square, and there's the other diagram of a square with a diagonal line. The diagonal of four cubits by four cubits is rounding it off five and three fifths cubits. So that becomes the maximum distance we can carry in a public setting without an error five and three-fifths cubits becomes the maximum because who says I can't carry diagonally? So that becomes my distance. The fika, therefore, bottom line is, is that when somebody throws an article... When somebody carries an article or throws an article in the public domain, Chayabi is not liable until he carries it. Past this five and three-fifths line whenever we say from the beginning of the 4 by 4 to the end of the 4 by 4 or he carries 4 cubits we really mean from the beginning of the diagonal to the end of the diagonal which is not 4 cubits it's 5 and 3 fifths cubits if he carried less than 5 and 3 fifths cubits pottery is exempt again forbidden but exempt Nimsa. Khan and here he clarifies it in 19. Sholish Midas, there are actually three settings, three definitions, three levels. Somebody picks something up in a public domain from this spot, and places it in another spot. In the public domain, if it was in within four cubits, that's my domain. It's permissible. Meaning permissible to begin with, but if there was more than four cubits, but they're still within the five and three fifths line. Porter, it's exempt, but forbidden. But if there was exactly five and three-fifths cubits or more, is liable, because he carried the object outside of his diagonal, which is five and three-fifths cubits.